I just wonder, and it's a kind of a strange question to ask in such a beautiful kind of rural place, but how many of you enjoy finding a park in the middle of a town or a city? How many of you enjoy finding a park when you go to a town or a city in the midst of the busyness? Yeah, a few of you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of normal. There's no kind of strings attached to this, just a kind of curiosity. But think about it. Parks, particularly in larger towns and cities, they kind of are places of peace in the midst of busyness, in the midst of noise and pollution. You can kind of step into a park and just feel like you're, you're taking one step away from all the, the mess and the noise of, of the city streets. I just think in my own mind, I've I got a picture of Central Park in Plymouth, not in Manhattan. And uh, Central Park was just at the end of our road when we lived in Plymouth, and it was a lovely, huge park. It was about three miles to run around the outside of it. It's a big old park. And I used to love going down there. We used to go cycling with the kids because the roads were busy in Plymouth. We'd just go for walks. I'd go for runs in there. There was swings. There was all sorts going on in, in that park. And I used to love it. It was a place to spend some minutes, maybe even some hours. I had a beautiful view out towards the sea. But a park is not home. A park is somewhere you go, take some leisure, and then go back home. But you see, for some people, and I, I think of Plymouth, for some people, park is a place they try to make home because they are homeless. They've lost their security of a roof over their head and, and they think, well, the park's a good place to go. I'll go there. And you know, the park in Plymouth took on a whole different feel after nightfall. Suddenly felt like a place where maybe you might meet some less safe individuals. You might encounter people that wanted to rob you. And it didn't have that feeling of peace and, and tranquility. But rather it was a source of anxiety. The park was not really home, even for people that tried to make it home. Just hold that picture in your head as we come to this last in the series of the prodigal God. And this morning I want us to look at the feast of the father, because right at the end of the story there is a feast thrown by the father. We've looked at the two sons and how one son was so obviously, we could kind of see a kind of a definition of, of sinful lifestyle. But then we looked at the older son and we recognised that actually there was as much sin in his life because he was trying to, to do everything in his own strength with no reference to God. He was trying to be his own saviour and fell into self-righteousness. 
And then last time, two weeks ago, we looked at an absent character in the story, but a very present character for us, the true elder brother, that is Jesus. So much in in that very short parable. Today I'd like us just to take a little bit of a step back from, from the story itself, to just try and see the story in a slightly wider perspective. Because it will help us to have one last look at this parable. And, and today to look at how this parable actually sits into the overriding theme that runs right through Scripture. Actually from Genesis chapter 3 right through to Revelation. And it captures something of our human condition. And so I'd like to do three things this morning. I'd like to look at our human condition that is captured from Genesis 3 to Revelation. Our human condition. Then I'd like us to look at the divine solution to our human condition before coming to the Feast of the Father. See, from Genesis chapter 3, which is where Eve takes the apple and sin enters the world and enters humanity. From that point where, where they are banished from the garden of God, the human race has been in exile from the place that we were created to be in. And actually you see it time and time and time and time again through scripture. Of course, there's the exile of Adam and Eve. But then the story of Cain and Abel, the story of the exodus of the people of Israel. Think about the exiled people of Israel in Babylon. Time and again, the people of God are not at home. They're in exile. Actually, Jesus too, he embodied that theme. Think about it. The anticipated Messiah, born in a stable, not in a palace. Grew up in an ordinary household, son of a carpenter. Not part of a a, a priestly or a kingly family in the world's eyes. Then his ministry, the time that he was, he was visible in his adult life. He didn't curry the favour of the rich and the powerful and seek influence through the normal channels of society. He, he worked around the edges. He grabbed the tax collector and the fishermen as his followers. People that weren't very well regarded. And right to the end of his life, he was crucified outside the city in a shameful way. Jesus embodied this idea of exile. As he said himself, foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head.
That theme of exile that's throughout Scripture actually captures something of our human condition. Because actually, fundamentally, each and every one of us, male and female, are like the lost son. Maybe the lost sons. Our default position is, is that we are astray from home. Because home is where we're in relationship with our Creator. And here in our sinfulness, that's something that constantly gets broken. Something that writers and philosophers have written about at length over the years. This idea that that somehow we have a sense of not quite ever being at home. I think it's something that in the West in particular we do our very best to try to cover over with our comfort, with all that we have. But actually if we stop to think about it we can see glimpses of how even our society tries to tell us we're at home but it's kind of hollow. I wonder how often do we put huge emphasis on events like Christmas and birthdays, big celebrations, holidays. We put all our emphasis on trying to make them perfect. We're told that if we go to such and such a place, it will be just a little taste of heaven. And all the glossy brochures kind of want to show us that. We're actually sold this notion often in in the advertising that we are kind of bombarded with. And yet so often we find ourselves disappointed with the promise of a big event. Because it's not quite what it should have been. If only such and such had happened, or if only so and so had been there, or if only so and so hadn't said that, then it would have been perfect. We're actually great suckers for nostalgia as well, I think. We think back to a time in our lives when things were perfect, seemingly. I have an image in my head of lying in in my front garden as a child, one summer's evening. And it's just one of those moments in time where everything seemed to be well with the world. And I sometimes think, wouldn't it be nice to just lie in that spot again? But of course I never can. Not least because I'm not a little boy anymore. But we can never go back to things that just seem to be just right. And that can really pull at our heart. That can leave us feeling disappointed. Nice day for a bike ride. I guess in in our comfortable existences we can easily try to convince ourselves that these things that we put our store in can, can somehow profoundly satisfy us. But if we come back to the park analogy, these things which are good things, 
are like a visit to the park. They can be genuinely good things. And we can put our store in all sorts of other things, in our jobs, in our relationships, in our families, in our homes, in in all those things. They are not bad things. But they're like a visit to the park. They're not home. Because home is when we walk with God. Home is when we recognise that we are his creation. And where we recognise that actually nothing we can do can earn our place in his presence. See, it cost God everything to give us that place. And so the human condition is is one that is, is forever not quite at home because our relationship with God was broken from the very first fall. But the second thing is the divine solution. That Jesus the true elder brother has come out of heaven to earth to show the way to pay the price of our being able to come home to God. See, he is our true elder brother. As we've seen from previous weeks, if you've, if you've been here or if you've been able to listen online, being, being our, our relationship with God isn't simply broken by, by doing bad stuff. And I guess the video there kind of focused on that kind of naughty boy type thing. Doing stuff that is, is kind of clearly turning our back on God and behaving badly. But actually, as I I said earlier, we can just as easily be alienated by trying to be our own saviour. But as we turn to the true elder brother, he can bring us back to the father's arms that are wide open. And that brings us to, to the third thing, the feast of the father. See, in in the days that Jesus uh, was speaking out this story, the idea of eating together was really important. At the end of a day, to come together and to eat was important. All the more so when there was something to be celebrated. Eating was a very important part of family life. And I think actually... It is pretty important in a lot of our celebrations. Think about Christmases and birthdays and and other things. We tend to do those things around food. Tends to be some kind of a feast that even we do, but I think even more so in the day that Jesus was telling this story. And this story ends with a lavish feast to mark the son's return to the fold. 
to mark his acceptance back into a family that he turned his back on. He was actually readmitted into the family. He was adopted back into his own family. And there was a feast. A feast that would have fed him bodily, because presumably he would have been hungry, having eaten the pods that the pigs would normally eat for several weeks or months or what have you. Something that fed him bodily, but there was something that fed him spiritually as well, in being back in the heart of his family. So you can't feast on your own. It's a pretty lonely feast, isn't it? something quite nice about kind of having a pizza and a glass of beer in front of the football. But that's not a feast. That's not a feast. A feast is where you're together with others. And scripture points us towards a new heaven and a new earth where feasting will be part of that picture. In Isaiah 25, there's a lovely little image in Isaiah 25 which has echoes of the passage we read last week about a new heaven and a new earth. Isaiah 25 says this, verse 6, On this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from the earth. The Lord has spoken. See, as Jesus talks about the father in the story throwing a feast. There are echoes of a feast to come. I wonder, what would it have felt like to be that younger son who was welcomed back, brought in and said, look, this is for you. I wonder what that would feel like to just have a taste of that feast. Well, I believe that that's something that's on offer to each of us. Actually, it's on offer right here at the Lord's Supper. Because actually, here is a meal that reminds us of our true elder brother's sacrifice, of what he's done to enable us to have just a sense of being at home with our creator, to have a glimpse of the kingdom that is yet to be fully brought to bear, but which Jesus said is near. We can have a taste of home as we share together in the Lord's Supper. 
seems like a very small feast and yet when you think about the enormity of what this represents it's just a little showing of the feast that is to come I'd love us just to reflect on two things as we come to this feast of our Heavenly Father. Communion is a time for intimacy with Jesus. He invites us to have fellowship with him as we lay down our sin our self-sufficiency, our wrongdoing, our wrong thinking, our wrong speaking, and ask his help and his presence. He desires intimacy with us. As we remember Jesus' death and sacrifice, we're invited to a connection with him, to intimately be in his presence. And that's kind of individual. But actually, this feast is a communal experience. It's not done in isolation. Just think the very fact that somebody passes the bread and passes the wine to you it's done in community. It's done together. It gives expression to something of how church should be. I was really struck by, by something that, that Rowan Williams said, and I, I put it on the front of last uh, uh, month's good newsletter says this, church is what happens when people encounter the risen Jesus and commit themselves to sustaining and deepening that encounter in their encounter with each other. See, as we come to communion, it needs to give expression to something bigger about our lives together, our sharing of faith together. It's not just a rite of passage that we go through once a month on a Sunday morning, but an expression of being a part of the body of Christ. We're going to further express that this morning as we, we meet together. And you're very welcome, members and non-members, just to be together this morning and to, to look together at where the church has been this past year and where it's going. And that's further expression that comes out of this meal. That we would share food together is a wonderful expression of family. And I'd invite you to maybe think afresh about what happens as you share in bread and wine. As you have a, a connection with home. 
with the place and the person that made you and loves you and holds his arms out for you. And maybe reflect on the, the family nature of communion too. 